Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Christine Bohan, in for Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, did the polls get it right in the US presidential election? So Joe Biden won, and he won clearly, he won outright, but if you'd been following the polls beforehand, you might well have been expecting his victory to have looked different. The polls had Biden looking likely to win Florida and North Carolina, which didn't happen, and to have a chance in states like Texas, which also didn't happen. And in the swing states that he did win, the margin was often smaller than expected. In Wisconsin, the polls had him up by eight points and he won by less than one percentage point. Nate Cohen, who covers polling for The New York Times, says that the polls this time around were far worse than in 2016. That's his words. Because not only did the pollsters get the numbers wrong by about the same amount both times, but pollsters this time around can't even give the same excuses for making mistakes as they did four years ago. So is that a fair assessment? Or is it splitting hairs, given that the polls did get it right that Biden would win? To answer that question, I have Dr. Kevin Cunningham, lecturer in politics and in the School of Media at TU Dublin and managing director of polling company Ireland Thinks. Kevin, did the polls get it wrong this time around? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd agree with Nate Cohen's assessment that uh, it's worse this time because in 2016, they had no real sight of what was going to happen. This time, the polls were wrong in the same direction, uh, in the same states. And in fact, it's even more surprising because there was an opportunity to even see this in 2018, where there was, again, a very strong correlation between the types of states that were incorrect in a certain direction and what had happened in 2016. So there was ample opportunity to make modifications. And while the polls did make significant modifications by waiting for educational attainment, that's basically trying to ensure that those with lower levels of uh, education uh, that answer the polls are kind of uh, appropriately representative within the final poll figure. Now they did that, but the polls were still incorrect, as I said, in, in the same uh, states of you know Wisconsin, Ohio, uh, Michigan, in the same sort of direction as well. Uh, one, one other thing about this is, one of the reasons why this one is perhaps worse is because in 2016, the national level figures weren't actually that far off. Hillary Clinton did beat Donald Trump by a significant margin in terms of the national uh, opinion polls, but it, it was at the state levels which was problematic in 2016. This time, actually, both are off by pretty much the same amount. What was the biggest mistake or the biggest surprise between the polls and the actual results? I mean, the biggest errors all occur in places like uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, Montana, um, Ohio, Iowa. So what's interesting is that all these places are kind of clustered around the same area. One in, perhaps interesting explanation for this, some argue, is that this might be a feature of COVID-19. Now, that might sound bizarre, but one hidden feature for why people do or do not participate in opinion polls is a, something called agreeableness, right? So if you uh, have this kind of personality trait, which is one of the kind of five factor models, which is suggests that you're more agreeable, it suggests that you're more likely to answer an opinion poll. We know this in other areas because we see that people that are kind of more civic minded, people who kind of trust the institutions of the state are more likely to want to engage with that sort of system. And so they're more likely to want to uh, vote. The reason why people think that COVID-19 has played a, a part in this is because perhaps some people were more likely to be at home, more likely to be have more free time in those states where uh, COVID-19 was an issue. And perhaps it was more easier to get those Democrats or people who are more civic-minded, as I said, to participate in exercises like opinion polls, uh, whereas those that uh, perhaps were less likely to engage with opinion polls were perhaps people who were 
um, Republican who were kind of ignoring the, the pandemic a little bit more. And that seems to be some explanation for some of this because the, or, or at least it's an argument that's out there because the states, as I said, for the biggest misses were, were the ones which were the main hotspots. The only states where the rate per 100,000 over seven days exceeded 100 cases were Nebraska, uh, Utah, Montana, South Dakota, North Dakota, uh, Iowa and Wisconsin. And those states were the ones that did almost the worst. Like, so there some people believe that. Now, there's a there's a pattern as well outside of that where, you know, the, the states then uh, towards the southwest of the country, Nevada, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, are all kind of in around the same area. And the polls have been much, relatively speaking, more accurate in these parts of the country. I mean, almost every state, uh, they underestimated uh, support for Donald Trump. But the extent to which they did so uh, seems to be concentrated a little bit more geographically. Um, and some would argue that this might also be a function of ethnicity, where various different ethnic groups and the preponderance of them might influence things. There's a suggestion that uh, turnout in this election uh, was relatively higher among white people as opposed to African-Americans, to a lesser extent Hispanics, apart from Miami-Dade County in Florida. Um, but yes, some people think that because uh, white people turned out in larger numbers, uh, then Trump was likely to do slightly better um, in relative terms. So, but, and they only know that from uh, the kind of data that's only just emerging now, which is kind of at a precinct level, which is below the county level. It's what we might think of as like our kind of box level data, I guess. Kevin, you spoke about the agreeableness of uh, people who were polled by the pollsters. Is there a sense as well, though, that people who were supporters of Donald Trump might have been less likely to trust polling companies, especially given everything Donald Trump has said about the media and about polling companies over the last four years? And so they might have been less, less likely to answer the phone or to stay on the phone and, and answer questions from pollsters. Is that an element as well? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know to what extent people are answering or, or not answering on the basis of what the president might say. I'd assume it would have an impact. The, the problem with the telephone polling uh, is is quite significant. So I would have been a, a big proponent of telephone polls because they would have been quite good. You know, they're a random sample. Everyone has an equal chance of participating. And that generally means that it's going to be reasonably representative. The problem now is that very few people actually answer these telephone polls and, and the proportion of people that are responding or the response rate uh, has been declining quite significantly. One uh, feature of this is a lot of uh, the kind of highest rated opinion polling companies in the United States rely on uh, telephone polling and uh, they were the ones that got the uh, election off the furthest. Um, not only that, quite a lot of them were using landlines and the proportion of people that use a landline only in the United States is, is less than 6%. Um, so, and so while, while they were kind of about a quarter of their samples were, were landlines. So there was a kind of a distortion there. The problem with uh, telephone polling now is because the response rates are, are much further south of 5% and it has been reported on some of these polls, uh, it was only one in 200 who were responding. That means that the people who are answering are by definition relatively quite unusual. Um, so not even just uh, the impact that Donald Trump might have had on it, but broadly speaking, uh, the people that are responding are are not n normal in terms of the, the general public. Now, opinion polls do kind of try to consider these things. You know, they will wait for 
whether the person is a registered Democrat or a registered Republican, they will use kind of voter files to identify people and to try to randomly sample them and, and to kind of try to call those people repeatedly. But again, if the response rate is getting really, really low, you're going to have this distortion in terms of the people that are responding, which can't be uh, waited for. So even if you're waiting for people who have lower levels of education, within that demographic, there are going to be people that are relatively unusual. Like perhaps it's the more civic minded of people with lower levels of education that are responding to the polls. And so you're kind of missing that that feature of it. Now, that's not to say that the telephone polls are the only ones who get it wrong. A lot of the online polling companies, and especially the, the really highly uh, regarded ones like YouGov, uh, actually got it wrong as well, quite significantly. So there's more than uh, just the response rates in it. Now, the, the online polling companies, what they do is they don't just ask people to opt in and, and wait it. They actually do quite a lot of statistical wrangling to try to make sure that the people that are responding to the poll are exactly representative of the general public using attitudinal uh, questions as well. So they'll try and make sure that the proportion of people that respond to the poll uh, include a lot of people who are not interested in politics, basically. So, and yet they, they still kind of got it off. So there's, there's definitely more to be done in trying to understand why and how it, it was uh, significantly different from, from the outcome. Some pollsters had warned beforehand that there would be a shy Trump voter in kind of in the same way we would talk about a shy Fianna Fáil voter here or a shy Tory uh, in the UK, where people are unwilling to tell pollsters who they're voting for. Did that materialise in the end? So I would generally be quite sceptical of the, the shy uh, voter effect. In relation to the shy Trump effect, the evidence isn't quite there because the error in relation to support for Donald Trump was perhaps less than the error in relation to support for his uh, fellow uh, Republican candidates uh, further down the ballot. You know, so the Republicans have done much better in uh, the Senate races than the polls have suggested um, as well. And in fact, the margin looks like it's even bigger in those races. So if anything, perhaps there isn't much of a shy Trump effect. I mean, the, the extent to which when the opinion polls are asking people about their voting behavior and about who they voted for in the past, Lots of them mentioned that uh, they had voted for Donald Trump and there wasn't a significant difference than more than you would otherwise expect in, in an opinion poll. So like you would expect if there was a shy Trump effect for people to kind of not remember or not recall that they voted for Donald Trump. And in this case, it looks like even when you ask the right proportion of Democrats and Republicans, quite a significant, the, the same number of people were recalling that they voted for Donald Trump uh, as you would expect. So. There didn't seem to be much evidence of the kind of shy Trump effect. You spoke to voters in swing states recently for a research project, and obviously swing states and swing voters were crucial to the result uh, in the end. What did you find out about them and how they plan to vote? And particularly around Hispanic voters, who I think were assumed to be safe Democratic voters, but who actually swung to Donald Trump. So one of the things I did uh, in advance of this election was because there are so few undecided voters um, there's so few people switching. Like, if you look at an opinion poll, uh, over 90% of people were voting for Clinton and Biden, or Trump and Trump, if you compare that to the previous election. And the outcome is determined by the small number of people that change size. If we go back to 2016, Hillary Clinton would have won had 0.06% of the vote actually changed their mind. Uh, you know, if, 
if a very small number of around 80,000 voters had changed their mind, she would have won the election. So the US elections hang on a very, very small number of people. And so the opinion polls aren't very good at actually being able to tell you what's going on with that very small number of people. And an opinion poll is good at telling you of the broad picture. But when you get into the kind of micro data within a, within a poll, you know, the, the very small number of people that are switching, it's not going to tell you a huge amount. So what I did uh, in advance of this was um, working with uh, a colleague of mine, Ian Warren, in the UK. We did a 6,000 person uh, survey across the swing states, identified the people that had changed their mind or had voted but had not voted previously, and then invited them to talk to them uh, in a face-to-face half an hour interview um, to get an idea of what the patterns might be in terms of the types of people that were changing their mind. The reason I'm talking about this is because, you know, one of the people I spoke to was a Cuban, a young Cuban uh, woman uh, uh, in Florida who had uh, identified as Democrat, but instead voted for Donald Trump in this election. And the, the idea behind the interviews, it's the same sort of thing. When you're doing a poll, you know, and you're, you're doing research on the basis of polling data or, or any quantitative data, you're trying to look at patterns of, in the data. In this case, we were just kind of trying to apply that sort of approach to a qualitative approach where we're interviewing people, where we're trying to look at what are the patterns in terms of how these people are reacting to this election and what are the kind of similarities. Um, and broadly speaking, whether the people were going from Clinton to Trump between 2016 and 2020, or whether they were going from Trump to Biden in this election, or whether they were undecided, they all seem to be uh, concerned about the economy. And if they switched to Biden, they were also concerned about COVID-19. And that seemed to be the dynamic that, broadly speaking, these people were relatively right of center economically and wanted tax cuts, believed Donald Trump had done well in relation to the economy. But they would have moved to Joe Biden, the ones that did, uh, did so in the context of uh, the coronavirus. So the people like this uh, Cuban voter that I spoke to uh, who, who switched to Trump were concerned about the economy. She was concerned about her dad's business. She was concerned about the prospects of her being able to set up a small business herself. I spoke to another uh, young voter, I think it was in Michigan, who had voted for Hillary Clinton and then voted for uh, Donald Trump in this election. And again, she was concerned she was doing a master's uh, degree and she was concerned about her, about her employment prospects uh, when she might graduate. That seemed to be the dynamic that was going on. The people that had kind of gone to uh, Joe Biden were also kind of economically conservative. To a person, they all said that Donald Trump had done well in relation to the economy and they would normally have voted for him, but were concerned about the extent to which he was he had his head in the sand or was putting the US behind the eight ball in relation to coronavirus and ignoring the experts and pretending uh, you know, that things were okay when they weren't. They didn't really like being sort of lied to in this respect. And I think Donald Trump had uh, you know, was perhaps previously viewed as a kind of a straight talker and his kind of obfuscation arranged at the pandemic seemed to have uh, not helped him, I guess, uh, quite significantly. And to that end, you know, you know, in the broad, broadly speaking, I think it's worth uh, acknowledging that if it weren't for the pandemic, I would say that Donald Trump would have won this election. And in fact, 
it's arguable that if the announcement in relation to Pfizer had come a week earlier, perhaps he would have won. Because look, if you go back months before the pandemic, he was level pegging in Pennsylvania in these same polls that you know had him eight points up on on the eve of poll. So the national polls were fairly off the mark. They did they showed Biden winning, which is what happened, but by a much bigger margin than the amount he ended up winning by. Are national polls still as relevant when you've got a country as big as America when the national result doesn't decide the winner? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think the US system is so bizarre. The electoral college is 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 really odd in in reality, you know. Um the idea that you take one state and you get all 19 uh, votes from that state. It just seems uh, to distort the results quite significantly. So I think the national polls are pretty useless uh, in terms of telling us what was going to happen. I mean, it was it was a certainty that Joe Biden was going to win uh, the popular vote. And the way in which it is nowadays, because the blue wall, as it was you know, previously, has, has switched sides, that the Republicans have a significant advantage in terms of the Electoral College. It wasn't that long ago that it was the other way around when the blue wall was there. I mean, the reason why it's referred to as such was because the Democrats had the, an inbuilt advantage by holding those states where they have a relatively large number of electoral college votes relative to their overall population. So those states are likely to continue to be influential um, because they're relatively valuable. I mean, uh, you know, the U.S. election used to hinge around Ohio. Now Ohio is, you know, a much safer uh, Republican uh, state. But broadly speaking, you know, doing better polls in these states would be a lot better. I mean, one of the things I kind of compare it against is, is Ireland, where, you know, each of these states are equivalent to or at least equivalent and in many cases much larger than, than Ireland. And uh, yet the opinion polls that are conducted in those states are few and far between and also um, based on relatively small samples of 500 or 400. I mean, I think to some extent, some of that is also influenced by the aggregators uh, like 538 who have said, well, this is what an A plus rated poll looks like. And so opinion polls polling companies are almost incentivized to create an opinion poll, not based on their own assessment of how you conduct a random sample and how you make a representative survey, but by the presumptions of um, someone who probably doesn't have that much expertise in opinion polling. I'd hate to, I mean, I know it sounds quite harsh, but like the extent to which 538 and those guys know about what's going on in an opinion poll is quite limited. So are there polling companies that are just not up to scratch? They're used and they're cited and they're talked about, um, but maybe they're not actually doing the job that you would expect a polling company to do. And is that skewing the results? Or is it more on the interpretation, which is what you're saying there about the way that aggregator sites or you know analysts will talk about these polls? So I suppose, where does the problem lie? With the polling companies that aren't great or with the people who interpret the data? I'd, I'd, say, I'd say the people who interpret the data are uh, to some extent a fault for some of this um, because, as I said, the ones that were the furthest off were the ones that were rated A+, and the ones that were actually closer were the ones that were rated the lowest. Uh, the two polling companies that were actually the closest were kind of probably Swayable and Trafalgar Group. Like, so they were the only two companies that were really kind of getting uh, relatively closer. You know, in uh, Wisconsin, as you said, like it was plus eight, and that, that plus eight was based on all these polls that were were massively in favour of Joe Biden, um, but it was much it was much closer. Trafalgar Group had it evens. Susquehanna is another uh, firm which had it uh, much closer, uh, plus three for Biden and Swayable. 
was much closer. Uh, some of them didn't poll places like Georgia. Uh, so Trafalgar didn't poll Georgia, which would have been a real test to see whether they'd actually just had a, you know, a pro-Trump slant to it or whether they were able to pick up areas where Biden was actually doing relatively well. Uh, Swayable did identify the Democrats as winning Georgia, although by a margin that was much larger than yeah, it turned out to be. One of the problems with the, the ones that are really highly rated, like Mutlenberg was one which I was particularly interested in because it was the A-plus rated opinion polling company in Pennsylvania. I mean, their surveys amended to only around 400 people, of which a quarter to a third uh, were landlines. Um, and the, the entire basis of the opinion poll results, which was remarkably consistent in having Biden uh, five points ahead of Trump throughout, um, was it was in, it was entirely dependent on how non-voters had moved. So they presumed that, uh, in their opinion polls, you could see how there wasn't much change between uh, the people going from Clinton to Trump or from uh, Trump to Biden. They didn't have much change between the two parties, uh, but actually they had uh, the the their premise, their assumption that Biden was going to win was based entirely on what non-voters were going to do. Um, because Biden was winning non-voters, people who hadn't voted in the previous election, uh, by about two to one. And if that was going to transpire, he was going to win. Now, that's a relatively small group of people, and opinion polls aren't as good at being able to figure out what non-voters are going to do, because they are the exact type of people who have varying proclivities to actually engage with the opinion poll in the first place. So you'd want to be fairly certain that your ability to measure non-voters is fairly accurate to make the assertion that you know those opinion polls were right and, and i think that was one of the limitations i mean the best opinion polling was the new york times one the best quality one being uh, done and, and that turned out to be uh, an absolute mile off as it turns out but that was again it was a telephone poll but they had much bigger sample sizes and uh, the new york times sienna ones did the pollsters learn anything from 2016 yeah, good question. So, I mean, in 2016, they did modify for uh, lower levels of educational attainment. So they definitely did change um, the way in which they constructed the polls on that basis, you know. Um, but I, I think one of the issues, perhaps, I mean, one of the open questions right now is whether this thing is, uh, whether the, the features of who does and who does not participate in opinion polls could be estimated, not just by political interest, which is what people were doing, what the British polling companies were trying to do and, and starting to have, you know, have a bit of uh, luck with, but also using psychographic uh, profiling to understand what are the types of people that don't take part. Like one thing I'm interested in is including uh, other polls on things like sports and uh, soaps and various other things that people might be interested in in order to have a sample or a panel that is representative of broader interests rather than just people who are interested in politics. So rather than trying to control for people who are willing to take part in an opinion poll on politics, but also willing to say that they're not interested in politics, why not have polls where you're also asking non-political questions or you're you're asking things uh, you know, that people are willing to divulge information about. So uh, one of the things about the, the Trump vote uh, that was noticeable was that when people look at those five-factor models and they identified that people who are openness to new experiences tend to vote left, but the, the new feature of the Trump and Brexit vote was that you tend to have people who are more uh, anxious and neurotic 
uh, in general, voting for these people. And uh, arguably, it is a, it is perhaps a uh, personality trait uh, that would suggest that these people aren't likely to respond to opinion polls. And maybe that's why there's this consistency, you know, that even when you control for education, it's not really doing anything because, you know, education is just something that tends to correlate with this particular feature, you know. So how does polling in Ireland then compare to polling in the US? I, I get the sense that we're quite p- proud of our polls here for being quite bang on in the marriage equality referendum, the abortion referendum and the last couple of general elections. But is it actually more accurate here or is that just a misconception that we have? Yeah, like, I mean, the average error in a given opinion poll in any country uh, is around 2%. That's what they say. It's it's, it's a, They're typically off by an average of 2%. That's not within that plus or minus three margin of error. It's actually much larger because it's it's within 2%, 50% of the time, and then 50% of the time it's outside of that 2% margin. And that's, you know, a study of all opinion polls over the last, like, 40 years or whatever. And it hasn't really varied much over time. Like, opinion polls haven't actually got worse, which is a kind of a misconception. In Ireland, and our opinion polls are relatively good, I mean, obviously disclaimer in that I, I have a, a, an opinion poll company that, that I run, but, you know, it's easier to do it in Ireland, right? Because, you know, if you're off by 2% or you're off by 3% uh, in Ireland, perhaps you might get away with it a little bit more than if you're doing, if you're off by that much in the United States where, you know, if the national opinion polling was off by that margin, then you have this massive error. Now, obviously, in this case, it was. Uh, but, you know, the, the difference in Ireland, I guess, is that, you know, there, there probably are a lot more polls in Ireland and they're, they're done with much larger sample sizes as well. Um, and, and it's just a little bit more intense than a given state level poll in the United States. So I think the polls in Ireland are uh, probably a little bit better than, uh, you know, say the Pennsylvania polls. We've mentioned how people might not have landlines or they might not answer them or only particular people will answer them. So are companies changing their methods to make the polls more accurate? We're all, all the polling companies are kind of gradually moving from uh, door to door to telephone to online polling. Um, one of the issues with online polling is that it's harder to get a representative sample because a lot of polling companies are built on people opting into their samples, people uh, who will definitely not be representative of the public as a whole. So it's it's tricky to try to make sure that those online panels are representative. But one of the reasons why that is happening is not just because it's cheaper, but because the telephone polls are becoming more and more difficult to do because the response rates, as I said, are declining. Um, and that is a major issue for making sure the telephone polls are representative. So, you know, the, the kind of main polling companies here uh, are either doing online or telephone. Like Red Sea do online polling as their main thing. I've kind of shifted onto the online stuff relatively recently and MRBI and BNA do quite a lot of telephone polls and, and some face-to-face stuff, but they uh, are also, BNA certainly have an online panel as well. And the thing about the online polling is that it comes down to the statistics uh, much more so than anything else. Like it's it becomes, more of a kind of a mathematical game of like how have you weighted how have you done propensity score matching and what what has been beneath the hood rather than you know just the standard telephone poll where you do uh, random sampling you know so the um the online polling is much more of a science than uh 
telephone polling was. And so I think one of the ways in which polling is changing is that it's becoming more scientific, whereas in the past it might have been an industry uh, dominated by kind of marketing um, people, I guess, because it's kind of for market research mainly. So it's kind of moving in that kind of mathematical direction, I guess. Are we going to be here having the same conversation in 2024? Should we just see polls as some kind of useful guide for what might happen in US presidential elections, but stop seeing them as actually being mathematically reliable? Yeah, like I, I think, I mean, this is why I did that, those interviews, is because it can only be so accurate, right? Uh, and, and it's become more, it hasn't become easier to do it because broadly speaking, people can change their mind in the last minute. People can decide to turn up or not to turn up. And, Polls haven't been very good at uh, approximating those things, about estimating whether people are going to turn out. Like we're, There's lots of questions people ask to try to approximate it, but it isn't very accurate, you know, talking, asking people about their enthusiasm and that sort of thing. There's always going to be a certain margin of error. What I think the direction is, is developing more effective qualitative methods in, to be used in conjunction with opinion polling. So trying to give an understanding of what those middle ground voters look like and then trying to understand a little bit more about what they might do or trying to understand a little bit more about the types of people who decide to vote or not vote, like doing kind of deep dives into really understanding those people. And as I said, doing, you know, half an hour in-depth interviews one-on-one with these people, I think, you know, is probably the most intense way of doing it. But you certainly get a fairly good idea of the characteristics of uh, the voter, you know, like, I mean, trying to identify that really, really small number of people who are actually changing, uh, who are influencing uh, the outcome. I mean, there are, they are actually really difficult to find, not just because they, they don't, the re- one of the reasons why they uh, are undecided or in the middle ground is because they don't really pay much attention to politics. They're not really that interested in it in the first place. So, I mean, they're not going to stop and chat to someone in a box box or anything like that. And, you know, they're one in a thousand, basically. We'll leave it there. Uh, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming in and explaining that to us today, uh, Kevin Cunningham. Thanks. Thanks a million. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thanks to Kevin Cunningham for his work on this episode. This is our 89th episode of the podcast. We're closing in on the Big 100, which is a really big deal for our little team here who makes this every week. If you want to give us an early birthday present, if you found the podcast useful, if you've learned something from us, please consider contributing to the journal to support our journalism and let us keep making the kind of explainery, in-depth public service journalism that we do here. You can go to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute for that. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producer Aoife Barry, assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan and me, Christine Bohan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think would enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.